I told the congregation earlier that um, it really is the greatest joy of my life to preach the gospel and share the gospel and God willing, um, I'll preach it until they throw dirt in my face. Um, but the passage today, I haven't been super excited about sharing, um, because of our current political climate and tense nature. I'm okay. I really don't mind offending people for the sake of the gospel. I really don't. I'm okay. But sometimes I offend people just because I'm ignorant or I didn't or I didn't share well. And so if you just be gracious with me today, because the passage is going to force us into some tense conversations and I might not articulate everything perfectly. And so just show me a little bit of charity. That'd be nice. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, your spirit in this place this morning. We ask that you'd breathe on us afresh. Speak to us. Lord, we love you more than life. We need you desperately, Lord. We don't need the, the strength of man, not by strength, not by power, by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we just say as a people, Lord, we want this place to be the upper room place of prayer. We want your spirit to sweep through here. We want the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the spirit to be prevalent. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Everybody say amen. 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 Well, Warren Wiersbe, as a, a commentator, points out the, the insincerity of Jewish leadership during the trial of Jesus. And so John's gospel really highlights this theme pretty well. And I, I just want to show you one thought as we um, work towards our passage. John chapter 18, verse 28 says this. They, being the Jewish leadership... Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Just examine the hypocrisy just for a second. They're holding an illegal trial in the middle of night. The, the Torah says that you cannot hold a trial at nighttime. Holding an illegal trial in the middle of night, knowing that they're condemning an innocent man. They bring him to the governor's headquarters, but they don't want to enter in because they don't want to defile themselves. John chapter 19, verse 15 through 16. The, they shout, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Notice who's inciting the crucify him shouts. And the chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. They're not, they're, they're, they're concerned with being defiled they, they want to be clean to be able to celebrate Passover. But in this trial, they'll just shout, crucify him. Be a, let him be done away with. We, we're not really concerned with whether or not this man is guilty. Just crucify him. Get him out of here. And then look with me at John 19, verse 31. And since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We're getting ready to have a holy day, so break those legs and get those bodies out of here. There's something strange about the religious spirit that, that we find from cover to cover of the scripture, and it's this, is that when we operate in the religious spirit, it is so easy to major on the minors and miss what Jesus calls the heart of the matter. To, to scream, crucify this innocent man and break his legs and get him out of here. We don't care about whether or not this trial is just. Just get him out of the way so that we can have our feast. 
Jesus will say to the scribes and Pharisees in our reading today, you are blind guides, straining out a gnat, you swallow a camel. Now, in the law, um, obviously, the the Jewish people are given dietary restrictions, and one of the dietary restrictions was to not um, eat the type of insects which a gnat is, and so it would you would be it, it, gnats are unclean according to the law, and so historically speaking, and there are actually some people groups who still do this today. They would strain out their wine, strain it out very careful, carefully, because they didn't want to swallow a gnat because it's unclean. Spend all this time straining out your wine, and Jesus says, all the while you swallow camels. Herschel Hobbes said that if our hearts are not right with God. We can never properly see the heart of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, We are all born legalists. Every one of us. Whether you'd like to acknowledge it or not, our political parties, the left and the right, both have a spirit of piety at times. Legalism. The Jews of the day will watch an innocent man murdered, then say, chop his legs down because we want to get his body out of here. But they'll make sure to strain a gnat out of their wine. Let's read Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dole and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat to swallow a camel. Now, we've spent a couple weeks off from this series. We stopped for Palm Sunday and for Easter, and so I just one minute want to build context again to try to let this be fresh in your mind. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is having this repetitive kind of conflict with the Pharisees. They're trying to tangle him in his words so that they could condemn him before Roman leadership. Um, And so all through Matthew 22 is this kind of debate happening with the Pharisees. When we move into Matthew chapter 23, we find Jesus pronouncing seven woes. Biblically speaking, when a prophet pronounces a woe, it's a pronunciation of quickly coming judgment. And so a woe is, is not just a, you're wrong. A woe is you're wrong and I, don't, I, I would not want to be you when you get what's coming to you. And so we, we're studying these seven woes that Jesus pronounced at the Pharisees because we want to understand what made Jesus' blood boil. And we, and we see at the end of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus makes this statement, your house will be desolate. And then Matthew 24 is just a long pronunciation of future coming judgment. Um, both judgment that will happen in this generation and he talks about um, future eternal judgment. And so you get the conflict with the Jews in Matthew 22 for the Pharisees. Matthew 23, woes and a pronunciation of judgment. The conclusion of 23 and all of 24 are talking about judgment. That's where we find ourselves today. And so we're studying the fifth woe where Jesus says you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel because you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. To Jesus, there are weightier matters. He says you should have kept the, 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 the secondary matters as well. You shouldn't have neglected those. But how, how hypocritical is it to keep the secondary issues while you deny the weightier matters? 
now. It's very obvious that Jesus is interacting with Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Remember the context of Matthew chapter 6, where verse 6 through 7, the people ask, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, what does the Lord require of me to come before him? Thousands of rams? Rivers of oil? And the prophet responds, you shall come before the Lord and do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Now, that is an incredibly thorough prophetic principle. Um, I wish I had the time to dive into how almost every single prophet hits on this theme. It is, it is, a, it is a thoroughly prophetic theme. Um, let me look at you, look with you just for a second to Isaiah chapter 1, which is the first chapter of Isaiah, just so you, that's what the 1 stands for, which means that he's really ready to talk about this. Okay, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. This is God speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls nor of the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense, it's an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. This is thorough in the prophet's. But here Isaiah says, your feast, your sacrifices, your prayers, God says, I want nothing to do with it. Go deal with your iniquity, your lack of justice, the fact that you do not care for the orphan and the widow, and then come back to me. That's through and through the prophets. So James, when James in chapter 1 verse 27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their distress, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, the weightier matter of religion is that you care for the marginalized, the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow, and that you keep yourself undefiled. But if you do not care, if you don't have a measure of compassion for the widow and the orphan, then your religious is just that. It's just worthless religion. So James himself He's following just the theme that runs all the way through the scriptures. Now, that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he says, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel because you deny justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So first, let's think through the weightier matters. What are the weightier matters to Jesus? This is where the conversation gets a little sticky, and I'm just, again, asking you to be gracious with me. 
first, when we talk about justice, doing justice, I want to encourage you not to import modern ideas and social movements on, on the top of this text. Let the text speak first before you begin to run to your modern interpretations. What does it mean biblically to do justice? Oftentimes when scripture speaks of justice, and in Matthew 6, for instance, God will also oftentimes talk about balance scales. And, and, and he, he tells Israel, I, I'm displeased at those whose scales are not balanced. In other words, um, when, you, when you have a scale that's not properly balanced, you are deceiving people in the place of commerce and stealing from those who think they're having an honest transaction. God says, that is an injustice that frustrates me. And so there's a measure of justice that has to deal with your, uh, your business, your commerce, whether or not you are dealing rightly with people in transactions. But the image of balanced scales, at the end of the day, it, it carries a larger connotation in Scripture. It simply means honesty. When the Scriptures talk about balanced scales, it means truthfulness. Justice must be founded upon what is true. Think for a moment of the image of Lady Justice. This is a historical image. It's been nearly in every society. Do you remember she's blindfolded, which historically means she doesn't see your age, your color, your gender, or your um, socioeconomic class. And she's holding scales in her hands, meaning that there's, there's truth underneath it. These are the, the concepts of biblical justice. Justice, again, must be founded upon truth. So in, in these matters, biblically speaking, I'm just talking principles right now. I'm not, don't, don't run ahead and think that I'm making application to modern political movements. I'm not. I'm just talking base biblical principles. These matters, when it comes to matters of justice, scripturally speaking, you must guard your heart with your head, not your head with your heart. In other words, the Bible says that all of our hearts are deceitful, and wicked, who can know it? You can't, you can't diagnose someone else's motives. You can't diagnose all that goes on in our chest. And so when it comes to matters of justice, it's not about what you feel. It's about what's true. And you must guard your heart with your brain. There's a great distinction between empathy and sympathy. Our culture has crowned empathy as the, as the king of all morality. Um, Empathy, etymologically, the, the word means to hear someone's hurt or offense and then to feel the offense and then to stand with them in the offense. Sympathy means to hear someone's offense, listen to the offense, and then to talk back to the offense if the offense is not founded upon truth. In other words... Empathy is not always biblical. Sympathy is always biblical. Let me give you this example. My daughter, I have, I have three daughters and a wife. That makes four women, okay? Um, they fight about their clothing nonstop. Literally this morning. Um, I don't have a kid in here, do I? Um, so this morning, I won't give that example. Um, but it happened. So imagine this happens. My wife says to my daughter, I want you to go upstairs and take that outfit off and put something else on. And I go upstairs and find my daughter weeping. And she says, mom thinks I'm ugly in this outfit. Mom thinks I look 
chunky in this outfit. You know, we're dealing with all the body image stuff. Mom thinks I look chunky in this outfit, and she's weeping. Empathy would hear my daughter crying and then take on my daughter's offense and then say, let's kill the woman, right? She's, she thinks I'm fat too. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> um, that's what empathy does. And so when our culture screams, be empathetic, they oftentimes mean throw away your brain. Don't think about this matter. Just feel it and rage with us. But to be sympathetic to my daughter would be to sit down on the ground. And I'd have to do this like every other day. To sit down on the ground and say, what's going on, baby? And she says, mom thinks I'm ugly. Mom, thinks, if, she, if she were to say that this hasn't happened. And I would say, um, baby, why do you feel that way? Mom, mom doesn't think that about you. I heard the rest of the sentence. Mom said, go take your outfit off because there's a stain on the back I want to try to get out. Sympathy hears the hurt, listens to the hurt, and then brings truth to the hurt. If the hurt is not founded upon truth. If the hurt is founded upon truth, then sympathy acts and takes up the cause. But there are times where I am offended. I am like, I have that temperament that's like a little bit too sensitive and it really drives me nuts. I, I get on my own nerves, okay, with that. Um, I can be easily offended and I need my wife to say, Caleb, you perceived that wrongly. You're assuming that that person was trying to call you fat. They were just trying to tell you that you're round. Um, <laughs> whatever, whatever the case. Um, do you, but, but our culture is screaming, be empathetic. But empathy is not always just. And so to be biblical, we have to be um, first concerned with what is true. Before we can have a conversation about what is just, it, underneath it, we, we need to carry the image of Lady Justice and to think about what is true. And so to make a cultural application, and I have no case in mind, so please don't import any news outlet case on top of what I'm about to say. But this is what our news media wants us to get riled up about, okay? So to bring a cultural case in mind, imagine uh, a white officer shoots a, a black man. If you immediately go to rioting and to throwing accusations, or you immediately put on your Blue Lives Matter outfit and start chanting and yelling, you're not concerned with justice. Because justice will first ask, what is true about what happened? Because what the Bible teaches is that we are one race, the human race with one set of common ancestors, Adam and Eve, and they gave us all one thing, sin, okay? Every color, every ethnicity. And so in this instance, again, this is totally objective. I'm not carrying anything in my mind at all. In this instance, if the African-American man did pull a weapon on the Caucasian officer, then in justice, the Caucasian officer has the right and the responsibility to defend himself. So to charge the officer for an act of injustice, if in fact he acted justly, would be injustice. And so just because you put justice, social justice on the title of your movement, does not demand that you're acting justly. Or... If the officer was acting out of anger and hurt and pulled his weapon and fired prematurely and killed a man who should not have been killed, then the officer should be charged as so. 
It is not the movement of law and order to scream we love law and order if you're not willing to charge a man who's acted outside of law and order with justice. As biblical Christians, you have to care more about justice and what is true than you care about your party's narrative being advanced. Otherwise, you don't care about justice at all. The greatest, um, the greatest pushback, insult that I've had in this season is to have people say, you were just a fact person. Or you are just you just want to beat people's heads with facts, and that's not true because I have I really tried to mourn with those who mourn, and I am I am more than willing to um, to to say that that any um, officer who acts in an unjust way should be charged more than willing, um, but to make for your claim to be that someone cares too much about truth is strange to the scripture. It's very strange because. What we, what we learn about God is he is a just God in a holy courtroom. And our court system should reflect the holy nature of God. Now, when it doesn't, that's unjust. But everything that I argue, I should be able to argue in the courtroom of God before his holy eyes. Otherwise, I am in the wrong. And so um, there are lots of nuances, guys. Lots of nuances. It is, it is ignorant and... Um, very lopsided, to not acknowledge that our nation does have a history of injustice, right? It's, it's ignorant and insensitive to pretend like we don't have a history of slavery or Jim Crow laws. Um, so so we, we need to be willing to acknowledge those things and to have those conversations. It's also not appropriate to, to pretend as if Jim Crow is still in place, um, and to not acknowledge those who have worked very hard to fight for justice and the progress that we've made. And so we, we've got to be able to hold all the nuances, look at any injustice. There's quite a distinction between systemic racism, systemic injustice, and just racism. And in other words, and this is, I'm, I'm talking just scripture. That's all I'm talking. In the Bible, sometimes the psalmist will say, will talk about when an unjust man rises to the throne, there will be injustice throughout the land. So if, if evil becomes legislated, scripturally speaking, that is a systemic injustice. And so Jim Crow was a systemic, and it was legislated injustice. When the law gets behind injustice, that is systemically unjust. But, again, not every act of racism is systemic because we live in a nation filled with people, okay? And there are racist people in our society, they are red, yellow, black, and white, okay? There are racist people in our society, and we should be willing to confront racism anytime we see it and to address it, but we also need to carry that nuance in hand and not say our entire society is systemically unjust on this issue because one individual acted out racism. We've got to, because we have to be honest with the entire thing, um, because justice is what matters at the end of the day. And so there are other issues. I'm just yakking now, but I'm allowed to do that because someone decided that I was worthy of holding the microphone. Um, when you talk about um, when you talk about gender issues, the I have a real problem with the modern. We've talked about this before, but critical race theory and what's what is called technically the neo-Marxist movement. 
um, because it very much tries to lump everybody in the same categories and you're either an oppressor or an oppressed. And as a Christian, I want to have a different conversation with someone struggling with homosexual identities than, than it's a totally separate conversation than a conversation about, um, racial issues, right? But in neo-Marxism, all those things are thrown in one bubble. And if you don't support one cause, then you deny them all. Um, but when you talk about issues of gender, as far as it pertains to employment, um, there's, there's a notion that we still have in today a great disparity between what men and women bring home and in income. Um, we have to, what matters to us is, is truth. And so when you care about truth, you have to listen to all the nuances. And so I had lunch with a pastor friend today who was, or not today, this week, who was very excited because his wife changed jobs and was able to get off at two o'clock every day to pick the kids up from school. That was a win for them because mom wanted to be able to pick the kids up from school every day. Um, when you think about, when you think about the wage gap between male and female, one side is unwilling to take into account that females oftentimes work less hours because moms want to be at home with their kids. That is, that is a truth that you have to take into account when you talk about the wage gap. So for instance, my wife wants to homeschool our kids, feels called to raise them up in the righteousness of the Lord, feels called to disciple them. I stand beside, behind her. The church should too. And I say, God bless you. Fulfill your call. She probably works harder than me. But she does not get paid. Because she doesn't work for a business who's handling commerce. Um, and so th- most of the time when you actually get into the numbers, you start to see that women... If you just look at the numbers very zoomed out, you say, oh, women do make less money. But then when you start to consider that for some reason the way that God designed us... Uh, women are much more likely to want to be elementary school art teachers than men, um, which is which is which is not stimulating the economy, but it's beautiful. And if that's what you feel called to, do it unto the glory of God. Um, but the issues are more nuanced than just throwing out these blanket claims and then saying, if you don't agree with me, then you're an oppressor, be- because truth has to matter, right? Does this, do you you guys following me? You're looking at me like you're crazy, boy. Um, like 40% crazy. Okay. But the other 60% is really logical. Um, and so it, one of the great errors of feminism is that it wants to say to my wife, you are less than man because you feel called to raise your kids. And what I want to say to my wife is what kind of coffee do you drink? (laughs) Like how in the world are you able to raise all of these kids, teach all of these kids, love all of these kids. Like I am, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not joking with that. Like she put something in there. There's something in that call, but do you you hear what I'm saying? Like I am flabbergasted at the God given ability to raise her kids and love her kids and shame on you. If you want to belittle my wife for feeling called to raise her kids, shame on the same sense. If, if one of my daughters wants to work in corporate America, shame on you for telling her she can't. Okay, that's, that's, she will stand before God on the last day for the way that she lived her life and what she chose to do, that she didn't stand before you. Uh, Did you guys catch all of those nuances? And so all that to say, when we, when our culture screams justice, the church has to scream back truth. What is true? What's most, what's most important about every matter is not the color of the individuals involved, the socioeconomic class of the individuals involved. What's important is what is true. Now, to tie on the back of that, 
I am not saying that our, our justice system is always just. I'm not saying you should trust our justice system more. Right? Um, that's, that's not what I mean because I think abortion is totally evil. But it's legal. And the Supreme Court has ruled. I have a lot to say about that. I'm not because judges are people too and lawyers are people. And they've all inherited that thing from Adam that seems to be plaguing us. And so I'm not saying to those of us who feel like we need to be standing up against more pressure, I'm not saying trust the court system more. I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying that we need to pursue truth, follow truth, and then bring justice. Then begin to make our, uh, our bring our ideas of what it would mean to reconcile an issue or to make an issue right from, from that conclusion. The Proverbs say, um, Proverbs 18, verse 17, the one who states his case seems right until the other comes and examines him. I've tried to say this to you and I want to keep saying it to you. Cross-examination is biblical. To hear the first case and pick up your flag and move your party line on and scream and shout and to not listen and perceive and try to discern what is true is sin. If you're on the right or the left. The only biblical model is to try to hear, discern, and pursue truth. And then to look to the law, the Torah, to see what God says about justice. How do you make this matter right? That's the only biblical posture to take. To cancel a political official for a statement that is taken out of context is itself not just. So you have a responsibility to find out what is true. Now, there are a million other things I want to say, but you don't want to hear it. Hallelujah. Go get me a coffee and we can talk. Um, um, if church, and, 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 I, and I, this is where I feel sticky because we've got to acknowledge that we've been so politicized, right? We... We, we should have turned the TVs off a long time ago. And we put, too much, we put too much stock in political parties. And I don't think we've been on our faces crying out for the, for the true king to come, for Jesus' return, for real justice to be established. And so we've been so politicized that I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. And so um, I reject that sentiment, and I'm just going to talk to you straight. Um, if it is shown that there is still injustice concerning racial systemic issues. No matter what party line you participate in, you must stand for justice because we believe in the Imago Dei, that every individual is created in the image of God and is worthy of respect and dignity. We, when we see injustice, we still have to stand up and speak, even if it goes against our party line's narrative. We have to be honest. Okay, you have to be honest. Oh, I want to say so many things. The first sermon series that I taught in this church when, when um, they decided that I was allowed to have the microphone was um, I worked through Genesis 1 through, cha- 1 through chapter 3, and I talked about um, 
the Imago Dei that God made Adam in his likeness. And I talked about the fact that um, every individual is worthy of dignity. I talked about the evil of racism. I talked about the evil of prejudice. And that we as believers, according to Ephesians, are one new race, one new people in Christ Jesus. And we need to honor and value every color, every, every type. I think it is a grave evil when European countries say we have... We have finished Down syndrome, and all they've done is aborted all the Down syndrome kids. Injustice. We've got to we've got to be willing to speak up and walk in uncomfortable places. Then, so so first Jesus says the way the first way to your matter is justice, and and he says to the religious people, you actually don't care about it. And then he says, um, next is mercy. Mercy says, you are rightfully convicted and serving time in prison, I'll visit you anyway. Mercy says, even if you are receiving your just due punishment, I will show up, lead a Bible study in prison, encourage you, edify you, and pray for your future, that your children will walk in the Lord, that you'll prosper. Mercy says, I'm not so concerned with how you got in this predicament. I'm totally concerned with bringing you to the place of reconciliation with God and with your fellow man and seeing you prosper in the future. Mercy is not so concerned with how you got there. It's Mercy's concerned with how do we get you out of here here. And you are called to be people of mercy. Now, scripturally speaking, when it talks about mercy, it always speaks of the orphan and the widow. And and biblically speaking, for instance, the orphan is not one who doesn't have a mother and father in the scripture. An orphan is one who doesn't have a father. And so um, we see even from the Bible that the father has a unique role in obviously providing and protecting for, but also in shaping the um, sense of self-worth and dignity and identity of a child. Father is incredibly important, so much so that the scripture says, if a child is being raised fatherless, the church should consider that child an orphan and how they can fill in the gap. So we have entire ethnicities, people groups in our nation who have a higher rate of fatherlessness. And, and hear me, I said this to the church earlier. I know that you see me up here and you think that is educated white man. But I'm telling you, this is pure white trash standing before you, like just straight white trash. Um, and so um, I, I'm saying that j- kind of joking. Um, <laughs> my biological father was not in the picture when I was raised. And so that creates a sense, certain insecurities, certain, um, sometimes it's called like a pauper mindset or an orphan mindset. It, it, to, to the development of a child, it really presents some issues. And the, and the Bible honors that, speaks of that. And so as the church, we're not necessarily concerned with how it got there, but we, we must be able to look at children who are being raised fatherless and say, what can we do to mentor? What can we do to, to help them understand college scholarships? And how do we help try to get under a child who's being raised fatherless, no matter what color they are, and, and push them towards their call in God and push them to prosper? And what the Bible is saying is that if you don't think that way, your religion is garbage. You, you have to think that way, scripturally speaking. Mercy has to do with the widow. We've relied way too much on government. Stop arguing about what the government should do and the government should do. We should be arguing about what the church should do and shouldn't do. We should be doing a lot more. Um, I'm, I'm pretty libertarian myself, so I'd say just shrink that government up, baby. Um, smaller is better. Um, 
but the church should be doing um, a lot more and taking those matters into hand. And we should be thinking about who, who in our community, in our body first, but in our community, where, where are there widows who may have financial um, issues? They may have basic like issues like car maintenance. They may have issues like loneliness. And how does the church call to operate in mercy there? Because again, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're just religious, but you miss the heart of God, the weightier matters. We, again, are working on um, how we as a church can engage our foster care system and do a better job. We're, we're praying that there are families in our church who step up and foster. Haley and I sat on in foster class all day yesterday. I'm fried. Um, but, but, we, but Haley and I are saying to each other, like, this is what God asks of us. It's not even about what we want to do or don't want to do. It's about what our Lord asks of us. That's Christian. When you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. He is Savior, and it's beautiful, but he's also Lord. Is he your Lord? And if so, are you obeying him in these matters? And then faithfulness. I think he is interacting with Micah saying, walk humbly before God. I think Jesus is saying um, that we should faithfully, day in and day out, consider the, what are the weightier matters of God's heart. When we sing, God, break our heart for what breaks yours, we then should search the scriptures to see what are the things that breaks God's hearts. And then we should lay on the ground and pray until we carry the same burden. To walk faithfully before God is to understand the heart of God and reflect it to the earth as we honor it with our sweat. Live faithfully. Otherwise, Jesus says, you're just straining gnats and swallowing camels. Oh, there's so much I want to say. Worship team, come. Come be holy, holy, holy. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I think, hear me say think. These are Caleb's thoughts. I think that the neo-Marxist movement in, in CRT, critical race theory, infiltrating the church may be a Trojan horse. I think it may be that many are receiving some of these teachings without really trying to think biblically. And I think it may be a Trojan horse to bring us to a place of disunity. And, and, and I think that's dangerous. And so um, I want to encourage us, all of us, red, yellow, black, and white, um, to use biblical language. When we, when we start, I'm, I'm talking very freely, so just forgive me. When we start talking about, um, shoot, we start, if you, if you start quoting to me from white fragility or um, Push, pushing the concepts of um, microaggressions as if they are perfectly biblical concepts doesn't doesn't mean that there's not such thing as of of someone acting out racism in a way that's subtle and and deceptive. I'm not saying that that's not a, that can't happen. I think it does happen. What I'm saying is that when you borrow all this language from CRT, from 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 neo-Marxism, 
from our universities and you try to import it and then you call the Christian church, live this out, you, you, you may be bringing in a Trojan horse that's designed to bring us to a place of disunity. When you talk about racism and issues of race, use the scriptures. Call me to Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that I'm called to bear the burden of one another. Call me to Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that we're one new man in Christ. Call me, do you hear me? If you see racism in me, call me back to Genesis chapter 2, 1, when people are created in the image of God. Call me to remember that Jesus taught that the nations would have new life because of his blood. Don't call me to the intellectual elite in our universities that are propagating their own movements and agendas. I, I think that's really important. And, and again, I'm, I, I actually enjoy being offensive, but today I'm not trying to, I, today I'm not enjoying this. You hear me like this? That's not what I'm trying to do. Catch me next week. It may be all right. Next week. I may just want to see if I can take somebody off. It's not, not what I'm trying to do here. This, this is a, like a family conversation. So is Caleb saying that we shouldn't be talking about racial issues? No. What I'm saying is we should be using the scripture to talk about racial issues, having conversation that challenge one another. We should be listening. I'm saying all of that. I'm just saying we need, we need to throw away white, white fragility. That Just put, it, put that book in the trash, please. And we need to stop spreading it in our churches. Um, now I may have said too much. Um, go ahead and stand to your feet. Um. Every one of you, myself included, will stand in the courtroom of God one day. And the scripture says that his eyes see and know you perfectly. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No creature is hidden from his sight. As you argue and think and, and try to move forward towards healing and reconciliation, your arguments and thinking should, you should remember that they have to be able to stand in the courtroom of heaven. We must be most concerned with whether or not what we are saying and doing is just in God's courtroom. Then I want you to remember that we will all stand there one day. He sees you perfectly. And, and whether you're willing to admit this yet or not, you will be guilty. I'm not standing here pretending as if I'm pure and holy in my own actions. I am guilty. You have lied, you have stolen, you have cheated, you have harbored adultery in your heart. You stand before God by your own merits and you will be guilty and condemned to a just eternal punishment. Because we are that sinful in God's holy eyes. So you have two options. You can stand there as a guilty individual ready to be judged or you could stand there washed in the blood of Jesus. So Jesus... He lived perfectly holy. He upheld the law, all of the weightier matters and the minute matters. Jesus lived perfectly holy. He is God in the flesh. And then he died a violent, brutal death so that his punishment that he bore on the cross would be a substitution for what you deserve. In other words, he didn't deserve punishment. You did. He took it so you didn't have to. 
so you can stand in the courtroom of heaven forgiven, justified, or you will stand there guilty and it'll be just and right. So this morning, altar team, if you guys want to get in place, if you've never given your life to Jesus, again, it doesn't matter. We don't, we don't, we're not, we do not care what you did three weeks ago. I don't give two you know what's about your teenage sin. We don't care. I've got it too, baby. Um, the only thing that matters is whether or not you'll receive the atonement of the cross, whether or not you'll receive Jesus as Lord and allow him to wash you of your sins. Today's the day, man. Don't leave here. Don't leave here condemned. You can leave here forgiven. You can know the love of God perfectly and fully. Next, as we prayed this morning, we, we felt a few things. One of us felt like God was saying that someone had arthritis in the left hand that God wanted to heal. That there may be breathe, someone's having breathing issues with maybe a deviated septum that God wants to heal. There was a word that there's this, this repetitive grinding. You feel like your life's just grinding. And God wants to bring you peace and joy and restoration and hope today. There was a word that some of us just need the truth to set us free. You've been bound by lies. Maybe you're living in bitterness. Maybe this season has led you to a place of real hardness of heart. I've been there. And you need God to wash you and, and, and heal your heart this morning. I want to encourage you to come to the altar. Come receive forgiveness and healing. So we're going to worship just for another moment, and the altars are going to be open. Jody, would you sing us um, that last song again? Come on, let's worship. Come to the altar this morning. We love you. We love you. Our Father in heaven. We love your kingdom. We love your kingdom, God. Your kingdom come quickly. Bring justice, bring mercy, bring forgiveness. We need you. Come on, let's sing. kingdom come swiftly God Jesus return quickly we long for you the spirit and the bride say come this morning the spirit and the bride say come Jesus make all things right So, Father, we thank you for your presence in this house. We thank you for redemption and reconciliation and mercy. We ask that the kingdom of Jesus would come. Lord, only your eyes see perfectly. Only you alone are perfectly just. And so at the end of the day, our cry is, come, Jesus. Come quickly. It's in your name that we pray. Everybody say amen.
Amen. We love you so much. You are officially dismissed. We want to thank you for worshiping with us today. We pray you continue to carry the kingdom in this city. the core.